everyone, and welcome to the Filene Fill-In. I'm Holly Fearing with Filene. The Filene Fill-In is the podcast where we fill you in on what's been going on here at Filene's home base and out and about in the financial services world. In this episode, we introduce you to our newest Filene Fellow for the Center of Excellence for Consumer Financial Lives in Transition. Dr. Lisa Servone is the Kevin and Erica Penn Presidential Professor and Chair of City and Regional Planning at the University of Pennsylvania Stuart Weitzman School of Design. The Center for Consumer Financial Lives in Transition studies the changing financial lives and livelihoods of consumers, new forms of economic struggle and financial fragility, and how these changes impact the North American credit union system. As Lisa shares in this interview, the work from the center will help credit unions serve people facing different kinds of transitions, income volatility, retirement, physical health, and inequalities. If we can understand the frequency of these kinds of transitions and when people are going through them, we may be able to help alleviate the financial burdens that have been historically created. One thing of note about this interview, we recorded this in March before we knew as much about what would soon unfold with the COVID-19 pandemic. So in a way, it is a bit of a time capsule look at the way things used to be. We recorded together in our small podcast studio, something unlikely to happen as such again for a long time. I was actually working on this podcast the last day we were all in the office together. What a surreal moment to look back on now. And unfortunately, it got put on hold as we set our focus in other areas for a time. But it's here for you now. And still, the ideas and challenges Lisa talks about are now only ever more relevant today for having lived through this pandemic and being where we are at with it now. Stick around until the end to hear Lisa's answer to her provocative question that led her to start one of her main research pursuits. If alternative financial services are so bad for people, then why are so many people using them? There's got to be a better reason, she says, than that people are stupid. And now, here's Lisa. All right, so let's get started. And I wanted to thank you for joining us for the podcast today. And also just to say, welcome to the Filene Fellow family. It's wonderful to be a part of the Filene Fellow family. A little hard to say, but um, (laughs) I'll master it, I promise. (laughs) Well, we're really happy to have you. So let's jump right into talking about what that means to you for being the Filene Fellow for our newest research center on consumer financial lives in transition. Within the credit union space, what does that really mean? Well, first of all, I'm really honored to be the lead fellow, the fellow for this new center. I think very highly of Filene and the research that's coming out of the think tank. And so it's really exciting for me to be a part of it. I think, you know, what this really means, this idea of consumer financial lives in transition, it really breaks down into two components. One is that there are a lot of trends happening in the economy right now that are affecting Americans' financial stability, and in fact, making them less stable, more unstable. And the second is that there are particular kind of areas of life. Um, We'll be looking specifically at at health, physical health. We'll be looking at um, incarceration and reentry. And we'll be looking at the changing nature of work. So, you know, it's kind of looking at these larger trends and larger issues and how they're impacting certain groups of people. But there's a lot of crossover. And what I hope is that we'll be able to really illuminate some 
solutions, ideas, practices that can really help financial institutions, especially credit unions, serve people better so that those issues have less of a negative impact on them. Mm -hmm. And Taylor, can you explain a little bit about why this was a topic that Filene landed on as, as an important research topic to focus on? Absolutely. First of all, it's critical, I think, for credit unions to understand the shifting environment around them. I mean, they are first and foremost service organizations. They're cooperative financial institutions who have that double bottom line incentive structure, right? They're looking to grow and looking to serve their members the best that they can. In order to do that, they need to understand who their members are. And it's pretty clear looking at, like Lisa said, at some of the big macro level transitions, big structural transformations of the economy, that the ways that people are making managing, saving, borrowing, you know, gifting, and just generally speaking, handling their money is changing. And it's changing as a result of long-term trends around wages, long-term trends around income volatility, long-term trends around who's shouldering the risk of participating in the economy. And so credit unions, in order to better serve their members, need to get a grasp on what those big structural transformations are. At the same time, like Lisa said, we all go through life and we face a whole series of expected and unexpected transitions, planned and unplanned changes in our livelihoods. And so much of what makes for really strong relationships between members and and their financial services providers, their credit unions, is an understanding of what the particular needs of a person at a particular point in time. So that means understanding what those kind of micro transitions, those life cycle and lifestyle transitions are like. And so when we started to plan out the transitions of our research centers, these centers of excellence, it was clear that we needed to understand consumer behavior, consumer decision-making, but in a kind of broader environment in order to take kind of financial practices out of people's brains and put them out into social life. And uh, no one's really better positioned to do that in terms of her past work, in terms of her vision for this center than than Lisa. So we're Mm -hmm. really excited to have her lead this project. Yeah, that's what I wanted to talk about next, because Lisa, you do have a really interesting background and have a lot of experience with this topic and also with financial services and credit unions. So can you talk a little bit about just kind of what led you to doing this type of research and and talk a little bit more about your background. Sure. You know, I've always studied poverty and community and economic development in the United States. Um, And that's taken in a number of forms. I studied microenterprise programs. I studied technology and the digital divide. And most recently, for the past maybe seven or eight years, I've been looking at how and why people, consumers, use different forms of financial services and started really looking at why so many people were using alternative financial services like check cashers and payday lenders. And in the course of that research, I really expected, I started out by working as a teller in the South Bronx, which is one of the poorest zip codes in the country, following on my former research, which really focused on urban poverty. And one of the things that I found in doing that field work and then later field work at a payday lender in California was that it wasn't just low-income people who were using these services and who were experiencing this kind of economic 
vulnerability and financial instability. And so that really led me to expand. I think, um, yes, we're interested in understanding the challenges that low-income people face um, in terms of these transitions and trends that Taylor and I just talked about, but we're also seeing the impact of these things on people who you would think of as being middle class, um, having a college education, owning a home, making $50,000, $60,000 a year. And so it's kind of been like this path where uh, I finish a piece of work, but it, a door opens to do something else. And for the last year or so, I've really been thinking a lot about some of the issues that we'll be able to explore a lot more and a lot more deeply with this center of excellence. I'm really excited that it'll be going on for four years because that means there's time for us to really dig deep and start projects that lead to other projects and really, I hope, have an impact in a pretty wide range of topics. Mm-hmm. And you talked at Filene's board chair breakfast at GAC earlier this year and really that talk started to make this research and this work feel really tangible. And it started to, I think, just give some clarity to the, the focus of this work. And you talked about how this center can help credit unions that are serving people facing different types of transitions, such as income volatility, retirement, physical health, and other inequalities that they face. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit more about why are we framing it in this context of a transition? How is that really different than just a financial situation? Right. That's a really good question. And I think, you know, Taylor talked a little bit a moment ago about the sort of quote unquote natural transitions that all of us go through or many of us do, right? They're part of the life cycle of, say, coming out of high school or college and emerging into adulthood. That's a moment where people don't have much money typically and they're 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 working to build a career and build a credit score. And then there are moments of getting married, retiring, et cetera. Um, those are things that we know a fair amount about, but we don't really know about them in this moment where these economic trends I mentioned before have made such a big impact. And so sometimes those larger trends are exacerbating perhaps the anxiety and the consequences of these more, you know, I hesitate to use the word natural, but maybe normal trends. So for example, one of the larger macro trends that we see is that people are no longer getting the kinds of benefits from work that they used to be able to rely on in retirement. They have uh, defined contribution retirement plans instead of defined benefits. They may have fewer other kinds of benefits that lead to them having less of a financial cushion. And so that moment of retirement often means for people getting a different kind of job, continuing to work perhaps in the gig economy or doing contract work or consulting work. So um, that's the kind of new way, I guess, that we see people experiencing transitions. Perhaps there's a medical issue and the fact that people no longer have medical care uh, or insurance as much as they used to or of the quality they used to from work. Um, So something like that is hitting them harder. Um, People have less savings and are more likely to work paycheck to pay, live paycheck to paycheck than they were before. So we're kind of looking at the combination, I'd say, of those normal transitions combined with these larger trends to see what the impact is. Uh, You know, we were talking a little bit before we started recording about the coronavirus, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm very concerned, for example, about how that event will affect 
people in the categories that we talked about, Mm -hmm. right? So, for example, we're talking about the effects of medical health or medical care. So what will it mean if people who are, say, working in the travel industry, the tourism industry, all kinds of other industries that involve human contact experience a decline in their ability to work, or if places get closed down, will they have larger medical issues? Will they not be able to afford their prescriptions? Um, you know, for formerly incarcerated people, they're also working in these jobs, uh, typically that are kind of at the margins. So we we see this event that seems like it's external. And because of these other trends, we're just, many of us, particularly vulnerable populations, are less prepared to be able to absorb it. Mm-hmm. So... For example, it might make sense for credit unions to offer a small dollar short-term loan that they didn't offer before because people need money in an emergency. So that's just an example, I think, of you know how a current situation could create a situation in which a credit union could respond in a positive way. Yeah, it really strikes me, Lisa, that the current moment with a lot of anxiety and uncertainty around COVID-19 in many ways, at least sort of through an economic window, looking at it through an economic lens, it parallels what happened, was it last year, around the government shutdown. Mm-hmm. And it seems yeah, like these, these big moments of change all of a sudden reveal these underlying conditions that have weakened household balance sheets and really put people's financial lives, um, you know, made them more fragile, made them more precarious. And so I think it behooves credit unions, it behooves all financial services providers to have a really deep understanding of what those underlying trends are, and then to understand the ways that those impact particular life cycle transitions, planned or unplanned, right, as, as we've talked about. I also think that there's real opportunity for credit unions to understand, right? So it, it speaks to their mission and it speaks to their differentiation as uh, supporters of people's financial well-being. I also think that there's a really important shift in the ways that credit unions can reach their members and reach new members and grow their memberships. I think traditionally we think about that kind of outreach as happening through segmentation, And that can be really powerful, especially when it's granular and when it's accurate. Mm -hmm. What we're talking about here is a kind of uh, segmentation in reverse so that instead of starting with a set of homogenous demographic characteristics and then making a set of assumptions that about the financial needs of all the people who share those demographic characteristics, right? Like all people aged 22 to 34 have these needs, right? Instead, what we're doing is we're starting with the need. We're starting with the transition and working our way backwards to you know, construct a membership around those needs, right? So it's a much more kind of empirical approach, really, to Mm -hmm. segmentation. And so I think that even at the very core of what this center is about, there's a really powerful lesson for credit unions about how to do their marketing, how to do their Mm -hmm. differentiation, how to do their value proposition. So is part of this work then kind of going to be helping credit unions better understand either frequency or patterns or recognizing when a member might be entering into a need that would be a transition financially? Is that the angle then that this work might take, that credit unions can alleviate financial burdens from their members if they're better at predicting that? I think that the center really can make two contributions. First, as Lisa and I have been talking about, 
there's the ability through this research to identify real groups of people with real and unique financial needs, to identify sets of transitions that many people share that you know, introduce needs that would cause them to search out financial services or would allow a credit union to uh, reach them and support them in, in, their, in that time of need. At the same time, as with all of the research at Filene, our goal is not just to give credit unions information about themselves, but to give them tools and skills so that they can then go out and do the work. So we can teach them to do research and understand their members better. So it really, the work is going to happen, I think, on both of those levels, right? Being able to actually go out and, you know, do that empirical work, original research, understanding people's financial needs, understanding those transitions, understanding those big macro changes, and at the same time, providing tools to credit unions so that they can replicate that for themselves. Mm-hmm. I think that's right. I think that we probably aren't going to be necessarily helping them predict. I don't think financial institutions necessarily have the kind of information to be able to predict that, but but they'll know their customers much better and know what the risks are. I think sometimes it's really hard to tell on the surface that people are struggling financially or in that precarious situation. And so hopefully by making these the, the trends and the, the categories of people who are using financial institutions more more apparent, that will enable credit unions to be able to create products and services that are better suited to their members' needs. Yeah, there's a real opportunity here for that curb cut effect, right? That sort of classic example from um, the world of accessibility and design where there's a big movement to make sidewalks and roads more accessible to folks in wheelchairs by cutting out curbs so they could, you know, access more easily those spaces, those sidewalks. And as we have now seen, and this is like a classic story, right, those curb cuts help all sorts of people, not just people in wheelchairs, right? Uh, There's a wide societal benefit that, you know, comes as a result of, of making those curb cuts. And I think that in some ways this center is pushing on a very similar kind of, a very similar set of changes, the goal here is to be able to give credit unions tools to improve their product mix, their service delivery, their value proposition, their ability to differentiate, their ability to reach members. Um, and whether they're designing for you know a particular group, the effects will be felt across their membership mm-hmm. right, as the quality of service improves. Right. So essentially, the service improves for everyone when a credit union strives to improve the service for the most vulnerable in their member base. Absolutely. So let's talk about a little bit more specifics on what we're seeing today as those points of financial vulnerability. And then maybe, Lisa, if you can talk to like what you foresee the future might hold to evolve into new forms of financial fragility that that we maybe aren't facing today. I think it's important that credit unions recognize and start thinking about what those things are if they don't already know. One thing we're seeing is that families are derailed financially more often than they used to be. In other words, their ability to absorb the need for a car repair, a home repair, dealing with uh, perhaps an illness or an accident, it used to be that families would be more able to absorb them. And we're seeing that that's not so much the case now. 
Um, it, you know, the, the issues are a little bit different for different populations. So I think the three trends that are really creating a very different landscape, one is that wages have been declining since the 1970s, so people just have less money. The second is that income is much more volatile. Income volatility has doubled over the past 30 years, which means that people are less likely to be able to predict how much money is coming in and out of their household, even from week to week sometimes because of the increase in hourly and gig employment. And the third is this um, lack of a social welfare safety net and lack of or decline in, in employers provision of, of the kinds of benefits that created that kind of a buffer. And so different groups of people are experiencing the effects of those trends in different ways. I've talked a little bit about uh, medical issues in terms of the folks who are justice involved somehow. Um, we've seen the whole criminal justice system become financialized. So you take all of those trends that have already made it a little bit harder for the average worker to gain financial health and financial stability, and then you add on increased debt that comes from fees and fines, um, the need to pay for everything from you know, paying your parole officer when you get out to home monitoring systems to restitution and forfeiture and all of these fees that didn't exist a long time ago. And now, now that it has really ratcheted up and we're seeing kind of like a double whammy effect of these larger trends and then these things that are hitting individual groups on the ground. Um, and then, you know, the third category of issue or topic that we'll be looking for is not necessarily person-specific, whereas we're talking about medical and incarceration. The third one is the changing nature of work. So just looking at the shift away from stable full-time jobs or salaried labor that came with benefits, less unionization, et cetera, to these more part-time, less stable, more volatile kinds of employment. And we will look at who those hit harder, who are more likely to have those kinds of jobs. And it's, you know, in all of these categories, it's no surprise that low-income communities, communities of color um, are much more vulnerable. And when you think about that changing nature of work, one thing that we've been really interested to explore, the kinds of folks that credit unions might be serving are not just engaging with their credit unions as retail consumers, right, as, as, as individual members, as consumers, but also as business owners or as entrepreneurs. So we're really interested to, to really track the changing landscape of self-entrepreneurship, right, of solo proprietorship, and to understand how different groups of people, whether those are, you know, women of color or, um, you know, other, you know, vulnerable populations of, of entrepreneurs, the ways that they're navigating that landscape of small business landscape and what credit unions can do to serve that really growing group of people better. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of this stuff, credit unions definitely have in their eyesight around serving their members' needs. I think it's really interesting the work that you're doing around the criminal justice system and people coming out of incarceration because I'm not sure that we definitely see some credit unions providing specific services for people with those needs, but I don't know if it's pervasive or widespread. It's a really interesting look at that in particular, but also it's an analogy for different types of very specific consumer needs. Can you talk a little bit about your research on that? For sure. Um, 
I did a set of interviews over the summer with mostly men who were relatively advantaged, I would say, or relatively motivated coming out of prison, but there's such a mix. So, for example, you have people who were incarcerated when they were teenagers who had very little financial literacy, often come from families where people weren't using mainstream financial institutions. So they come out 10, 20, however many years later, and they've got to figure it all out. So that's a piece of it, I think. Um, there's also uh, there's a huge amount of debt and figuring out how to manage that. Um, and I talked a little bit about this whole financialization of the criminal justice system, which has made it more expensive to be incarcerated and to be justice involved. And then you have people who are coming out who maybe never had a credit score or now they have a very bad credit score because they had debt when they came in that they weren't able to pay. So it's possible that their assets have been seized or they had car payments that they couldn't make or whatever. And, you know, the, the importance of a credit score is a relatively new phenomenon. There's a um, sociologist at Princeton named Fred Wary who talks about this new phenomenon of financial citizenship where we all need these, these credentials in order to participate in the economy and civil society. So that's another piece of it um, for people who are coming out of prison is how, how do you get that? How do you get a credit score? How do you get a good credit score? How do you build credit? When if you have any data in your file, it's probably not very good data. So I think there's a role for financial literacy and financial coaching. There's an organization I'm starting to do a little bit of work with in New York City called the Financial Clinic that's been working with reentry organizations on financial coaching. So I'm curious to see to what extent that might be beneficial, show some results. I'm also really curious about whether we could think about, say, credit unions opening accounts for people while they're in prison. Um, is that a way to help people learn about financial literacy, come out with an account, be able to deposit it? Um, as it stands, people come out of prison with a prepaid card usually that has any money that they've earned while they were in prison or any of the leftover from their commissary card on that card. Um, many of these cards cost a lot to use. Every transaction costs a few dollars. It costs 45 cents just to check your balance on the card in some cases. So thinking about another way that financial institutions could help ease that transition just from a financial perspective, I think would be enormously beneficial. And how do you see this information potentially impacting or changing the North American credit union system? What I think we're hoping for as a result of the, the center is that we'll all be more informed about the unique challenges and opportunities uh, that are provided by this current situation, and that the credit union system will change by adapting itself to this new reality. I think, in general, it takes a long time for financial institutions to... Um, they're, they're not typically very dynamic organizations, and that's not just... It's not necessarily their fault. They're, they have to respond to an awful lot of regulation. It's not very easy to, to turn on a dime, but I think being able to be responsive to this new information about how these economic trends are affecting people will hopefully spur a whole new range of innovation. Mm -hmm. That's how I would hope that it could be transformative. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's that's essentially what we're looking at here is it's, it's not necessarily innovation in the form of something that's never existed before that's new and shiny, but innovation as in 
an unfulfilled need that um, we can find a way to make it both um, beneficial for the consumer, but also credit unions are a business. And I, I think there's huge opportunities here to be strategically smart about um, how a credit union business is run by better meeting the needs of their um, communities. So I think there's a huge opportunity there around being innovative in the way that credit unions offer their products and services. Yeah, innovation starts with human needs. And so, you know, what this center is really focused on is identifying what those needs are. And I think what's really exciting is that, you know, businesses like credit unions don't necessarily have either the expertise or the capacity to take on this kind of research, but some of them are innovating and thinking about new products. And what this center allows us to do is to identify really interesting practices or products and say like, hey, let's find out if this is working. Let's find out who it's working for. Let's explore that a little bit more. So I think we'll do some of that sort of evaluative research as part of this too. Um, One of the projects that Taylor and I have been talking about would look at small dollar credit products that are sort of like payday loans, but that are offered through banks and credit unions and say like, are, are these better? Are they working for people? Are they costing them less and helping them bridge that gap maybe between the need and when they get their next paycheck? So I think that'll be really cool too, because then we can create a case if it looks positive for expanding those things. And you all have such a great network that ideas spread really quickly. Yeah, I'm really excited to be able to source new ideas from our partners in the industry, outside the industry. So if you're listening and you have an idea... Yeah. Come come talk to us. Definitely. <laughs> Taylor, I was going to have you talk a little bit more about some of those initial projects that are in the pipeline for the center. I think that our credit union audience is probably excited about this. And so what can they expect to see? Well, first of all, with all of our new centers, we're really excited to be able to put out a kind of position paper, something that really outlines the goals and objectives of the center over the course of its four years. Our goal is ultimately to, you know, think forward, change lives. And so in order to be able to do that, we need to understand specifically what are we aiming for. So uh, with all of the new centers of excellence at at Filene, we'll be developing that position paper, that uh, sort of concept paper that lays out our um, research trajectories. Immediately on the docket, we have a few projects that we're really excited to dig into. The first uh, will be looking at the financial costs of reentry, building on some of the work that Lisa has talked about, her interviews with uh, justice-involved individuals, incarcerated um, folks. And we're going to be looking specifically at their at their financial needs as they transition back um, into uh, society um, out of the uh, criminal justice system or um, alongside the criminal justice system. The second project we're going to be looking at is at the relationship between um, healthcare costs and income volatility, right? Do um, unexpected healthcare costs produce uh, income volatility uh, or, or cash flow volatility, I should say, the unexpected expenditures, right? Do they impact financial well-being by, you know, exacerbating the cash flow difficulties that households have? The third project, um, I hope that we'll be starting to look a little bit at the possibilities for credit unions to serve folks affected by trauma of various kinds in different ways. Um, So to try to understand what a trauma-informed financial services would look like. Um, Trauma thought really broadly, and and this is something that Lisa knows really well as someone with an urban planning background, that trauma is both event, 
driven and also can be more ambient or kind of geographically and historically rooted. So we're thinking very hard about um, the kinds of trauma that might come out of, you know, uh, being a veteran, right, and maybe suffering PTSD or, um, you know, generally speaking, coming back from war and spending time, again, kind of transition, right, back into society into a working life, um, or the kinds of trauma that might come building on some work that we've done previously around domestic violence and the unique needs of domestic violence survivors uh, to um, you know, be more financially stable and financially independent. And then the kinds of trauma that comes from profound kinds of inequality, economic and uh, racial and ethnic inequality, from geographic um, inequities and exclusions. Mm-hmm. So, you know, more, maybe more neighborhood kinds of, mm-hmm. of trauma. So um, we're really interested in opening doors for credit unions to think differently about what they can do through the financial services they offer to make people's lives better. And then the final one, we're really excited to embark on a project um, to look specifically at, at vulnerable entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll be doing that work with a researcher at Virginia Commonwealth University, Tressie McMillan Cottom, to look specifically at women of color who are starting their own small businesses and uh, financial needs that they face as they take on that endeavor. So we have come out of the gate strong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I was going to say, I was, you know, after Taylor and I talked in January, I'm thinking like, okay, we're going to like think about a little table and each year and three or four projects and bam, we're like, we're doing it. Mm -hmm. There's (laughs) just a lot of need out there and a lot of possibilities. So I think we're all, at least I'm really, yeah, Yeah. we have a high ceiling. (laughs) What I'm excited about is that it's also the nature of this topic is unknowable. So you can have the category of medical debt as a cause of financial vulnerability, but you won't know what people are going to be faced with in two years from now. And so it's it's yeah. a very fluid, a good like point. in the moment, you know, because I think we think of research as being um, not extremely timely because it takes time to do research, but this is actually like as it's happening kind of research. Yeah. It is. It's a very dynamic situation. I mean, it's interesting that some of the trends I talked about, the sort of, I call them macro trends about declining wages and that sort of thing, you know, they've been they've been happening. It's not like it just started. It's been happening for 30 years. But at some point, the combination of these things and the fact that they continue, people get to a breaking point where you really start seeing things show up. So I think, you know, people can kind of adapt for a long time another income earner, you know, the second income earner, adult enters the labor force, uh, you cut back on expenses, et cetera, et cetera. But at some point you really start seeing the consequences. And I think we're in that moment. Mm-hmm. Lisa, what are you most looking forward to as, as being Filene's fellow for this research center? I think I'm, uh, I, I'm looking forward to the ability to connect with other people, I think, that are both experiencing this on the ground level. So the people who are, say, working at the credit unions and serving customers and also this whole range of researchers. So, for example, Taylor just mentioned Tressie McMillan Cottom, who I'm a big fan of, but I've never met. And I think this is such an interdisciplinary topic. And the way that Filene sets up these centers enables reaching out to people in other disciplines who are doing related research, but maybe not people that I would be 
coming across or working closely with if I wasn't doing this. And so kind of creating this community of researchers that are working on this that's also very connected to a community on the ground, the credit union community and consumers. I'm very uncomfortable doing research that doesn't have a strong application, whether it's for an institution like a credit union serving its customers or for policymakers. I'm hoping that this body of research that we engage in will do both, that will have the ability not only to change practices that are happening in products on the ground, but also in some cases, you know, what we really need is a higher minimum wage or better health care for people. So I'm hoping that it has the potential to impact both the way credit unions serve their customers and policymakers who can really see what the impact of these issues is on people's daily lives. Yeah, I think that the opportunities are there for credit unions to serve their members better as service providers, as coaches, and as advocates for their particular memberships. So we're I'm really excited, like Lisa, to see what kinds of big structural change we might be able to advance. Mm-hmm. Lisa, I, I would love it if we could dig into your life a little bit more now. This is always the fun part of sure. our podcast. Um, we just want to, you know, get our get our credit union audience to to know a little bit more about you. So starting with with um, an easier question, just about um, I, I'm sure that you do a lot of research on a lot of different topics. So just talk a little bit about, you know, what you find most interesting. What are you kind of passionate about or driven towards doing research on? Uh, You know, these broad topics that I talked about, uh, about poverty and economic development, and I'm also really passionate about the ways in which these issues land on people of color and women. And so that really drives me in many ways. And I guess the way that I do research, I'm always most comfortable when I'm actually Um, talking with people who are experiencing what's going on, who are on the front lines. And that's kind of what led me to do this ethnographic work that I did for my last book, Working as a Teller. I'd never actually done anything like that. But I often really rely on in-depth interviews, spending a lot of time in communities. And so I'm always so appreciative of people sharing their stories and taking the time to help someone like me who is trying to make the situation better, but to really explain what's going on for them. I I take it very seriously because I feel like I've been entrusted with these stories and I need to take care of them. Um, But that, just hearing people's stories is what kind of motivates me to keep going. And sometimes I feel like what I'm mostly doing is sort of collecting and gathering these stories and then presenting them to the people who can actually do something with them. Sometimes I feel like a glorified middleman, Mm -hmm. you know. But I think it's really important work. And I guess that's what drives me. Mm -hmm. How did that come to be? I I feel like it's a little unusual to see a researcher like you go into the field and actually work as a teller. Is that something that that you see commonly or, you know, what 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 drove you to go ahead and dive in and and do it yourself like that? I think a couple things. I mean, one is that I have this sort of it's, it's more like a hunch or an instinct that I feel like I'm best equipped to talk about something with confidence the closer I've been to it. Mm-hmm. So while I feel like some of the best work that I've done or the most powerful work has been in association with scholars who work on large data sets and do regression analysis, um, and I honestly think that combining the two methods is, is super powerful for myself, I feel like I need to get close to it. 
And and the other thing I guess that's relevant to your question is that you know when when I have a research question, and in this case, the case that led me to work as a teller, the question was thinking about all of the both consumer advocates and policymakers in the media really uh, talking about how bad these alternative financial services were for people. And having worked in a lot of poor communities, I kind of sat back and I said, like, if, if they're so bad for people, why are so many people using them? Like, there's mm-hmm. got to be a better reason than that people are stupid. And I felt like the best way to answer that question was to get as close as I could. Mm-hmm. And I, in this case, I kind of felt like it wasn't going to be enough just to interview people. And again, it's a little bit, there's a little bit of like hunch following yeah. <laughs> involved where I kind of go like, I think this is what I have to do. And um, fortunately, I was able to let have a couple of business owners let me in. I did not do the research undercover. I was more embedded. Mm-hmm. And I absolutely, you know, I have lots of examples of things that I learned that I would not have understood if I had not been at the teller window. Mm-hmm. So it then it confirmed my hunch, right? And then... Um, and now, you know, I don't know that I need to do that kind of work. Maybe, who knows? Maybe I'll work at a credit union before, <laughs> before it's all over. But usually it's the question that drives the approach, the methodology. So mm-hmm. what's the question then? How, what's the best way for me to answer that question? Did you get your question answered about if, if alternative financial services are so bad, why people are still using them? I did. Do you want to know the answer? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. So it really comes down to three things. And the first is probably surprising because one of the things that people uh, really get down on alternative financial services about is their expense, that they're costly. And that is true. But what so many people told me was that they said banks were more expensive. Hmm. Um, And so that even that seemed, seemed a little bit hard to believe. But then I would see somebody come into the check casher with their paycheck, they would cash their checks. It would cost usually 2%. Um, that was the state mandated rate, 2% of the face value of the check to cash it. And then they would fan their bills out in front of them because we did bill pay too. And I'd see them kind of putting a pile of cash on every bill, some money for the phone bill and the credit card bill and whatever else that they had to pay. And oftentimes I could see that they weren't paying the bill in full. Now, this is something I would not have known if I wasn't standing right there in front of them. Um, so they paid 2% to cash the check. They're now going to pay $1.50 to pay every one of those bills. And it's easy to kind of add that up and go like, wow, they just paid, you know, 10 bucks on a relatively small check. And whatever is left, the cash that they have left is what they can live on until their next paycheck. But then when I would talk to people and they would say like, well, if I time this wrong, first off, I have my paycheck. If I deposit it in the bank, I'm not going to have access to the money for three or four days till it clears. By that time, I may be paying late fees. Um, or if I time things wrong and I deposit this check in my account and then I write checks to the, the creditors that I owe and I don't time it exactly right in my check balances, then I'm going to have an overdraft fee of $35. And so, and those things had happened to many people already. And so when I looked at it that way, it was actually, I could see the logic behind what they were doing. So the expense is one thing and connected to that is liquidity. Um, the second thing was transparency. People knew exactly what they were paying for and what they were getting at check cashers and payday lending. It's, it's written in huge font. 
whereas they felt like they were constantly being tricked by banks that were charging different fees, um, charging them for not using their account to enough, charging them for using it too much, charging them for certain ATMs that they didn't realize charged. Um, and they felt like it was not easy to get the information they needed to know how to avoid those fees. Uh, and then the third thing was they said they often experienced better service mm-hmm. at the check casher. And I can tell you that seems counterintuitive. Whenever we see depictions of these businesses in the media, we see them as being kind of dark with some like blinking neon light and dirty. <laughs> and the places I worked were clean and friendly and the tellers all knew every customer's name. And mm-hmm. we got a lot of training actually about how to deal with and treat customers. So I came away really understanding the reasons that people were making that choice and understanding that it was not an ignorant choice. It was an informed choice. And often for them, depending on their financial situation, it was a less expensive choice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that very closely aligns with all of our member experience research. So, I mean, it's not surprising, but it's it's a little it's a little sad to hear it laid out like that. But I mean, it makes sense. It's a good business model. I mean, when you look at the components of trust, what you know, what is it that foments trust between a person and an organization or an institution? It's all of these things, right? It's transparency. Yeah. It's, um, you know, it's it's the relationship, right? The sort of the expectation of a longer-term relationship rather than it being one-off and transactional. And it's the ease of use, right? And with that, the cost, right? So the, there are some real right. shared patterns, right, in terms of what builds trust. Um, and I think, you know, to the detriment of traditional financial services, um, alternative financial services institutions, not all of them, but many of them have recognized and capitalized on those things. Mm-hmm. We're starting a book club at Filene where we're going to be reading all of our fellows' books. And so yours is definitely at the top of that list. Oh, awesome. Well, if you want me to call in and chat, I would love that. Oh, yes. Definitely. Definitely. We'll be taking you up on that for sure. Um, I also wanted to ask, because I I don't know if you have any other time, but besides when you're being a researcher or a professor or an author or a teller, if there's any leftover time, what (laughs) what are you spending your time doing? Oh, gosh. Well, I've learned more and more as I've gotten older how important it is to have balance. So I really prioritize sleep. I like Mm -hmm. to say it's my drug of choice. I try to get eight (laughs) hours a night. Oh, that's awesome. (laughs) That's amazing. It is the best drug, honestly. Um, yeah, like a good night's sleep, I feel like I am Wonder Woman. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm pretty active. I do yoga and Pilates, and I bike. So for me, physical activity is also really good for my body and my brain. I have a dog, and we are a therapy dog team. We go to the mm-hmm. Children's Hospital of, of Philadelphia, and, and my dog, Friday, who's a cardigan Welsh corgi, she cheers up the kids, Aww. which is awesome. It's like... <laughs> It's a, I feel like I'm cheating almost because she makes them so happy and I feel so good. And it's like, <laughs> this is volunteer work. Oh, um, and I also have two, <laughs> I also have two teenagers, a 15 year old and a 17 year old. So I like to hang out with them as much as they'll allow me these days, um, which is, you know, it's, it varies week <laughs> by week, depending on what kind of mood they're in. But um, my daughter is a, is a drummer. My son plays soccer. So there's a lot of just, you know, going to concerts and going to gigs and going to games and a lot of that sort of stuff. But we, you know, we have like family meals almost every night of the week. My husband and I really like to cook. So, you know, we like to hang out at home mm-hmm. too. Lisa, do you have a favorite recipe? What's your go-to? Oh, goodness. 
Well, let's see. Um, you know, it, it, my kids are pretty picky eaters. So my husband and I are constantly fantasizing about all the fish and the other things we'll eat as soon as they go to college, which is like, <laughs> it's in sight, you know, like I'll miss them. And yet. You'll finally be but able to have like salmon. Like, <laughs> yes, totally. The only fish we'll eat is like when we get fresh cod and we fry it, which mm-hmm. is delicious, but mm-hmm. you know, limited. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of my go-to recipes is a meatball recipe from a restaurant in New York City called Franny's, which oh. is a great Italian place um, yeah. in Cobble Hill or Carroll Gardens, right around there, which is near where I used to live before I li- moved to Philadelphia. So that's a total go-to. Um, I make a good shakshuka, which is kind of a Middle Eastern egg recipe. That sounds delicious. That that's one of my, my wife's favorites. My kids actually like to. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the, that's the key is like finding things that have a lot of flavor and, um, and that my kids will eat too. I feel like we do a lot of like frozen Trader Joe's meals. (laughs) (laughs) That's what my three and a half year old can handle at this point. Yeah, I know. My son likes to bake too. My daughter, you know, cannot boil water, but my son actually likes to cook a fair amount. So we, we watch the great British baking show and we, you know, we make cookies and homemade marshmallows and stuff like that. And that's, that's fun too. That's like awesome. A good, it's a good way to spend time. Yeah, that is awesome. And yeah. it's, it's great to have um, a silver lining to when they, when they leave the nest. Something yeah. to look forward yeah, to. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. We are forcing my daughter, who's the, she's a junior in high school. We're forcing her to learn how to cook like five things before <laughs> she leaves the house. Just that's so good. She, she doesn't live on peanut butter. Yeah. <laughs> One of the best things that my parents ever did for me was uh, they made me a cookbook when I went off to college. Mm-hmm. So I had like, oh, like half a so dozen great. recipes that were very easy, like mostly from a can, but like not <laughs> quite. <laughs> um, um, and 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 these were things that your your mom or dad made for you too when you were growing up. Yep. So like they were familiar. Yep. Family That's family great. meals. Um. And and now I'm the one who cooks in the family. I couldn't cook at all growing up, but uh, now I'm the <laughs> I'm the one who cooks and cleans. <laughs> it's all because That's, of that cookbook. That's what happened with my husband. <laughs> His mom didn't cook at all, and then he lived in college with a group of five guys, and they all they each took turns making dinner one night a week, and they were competitive. So it was uh-huh. like you, you had to bring your A game. Like so yeah, he's a really good cook now. I feel like these these podcasts with our fellows too, we we like secretly uncover all of these hidden skills, and um, I I just think we need to bring all of our research center fellows together, and I I think we would have an amazing dinner party. We would oh, have absolutely. a cook, we'd have a sommelier, yeah. musician. Yeah, um, yeah, we have we yeah. have. Tri- I have been, I've actually been um, I've been knitting during this call too. I should tell you. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you That's know? amazing. What are you knitting? <laughs> I'm knitting a, a big sort of heavy cowl. It's a really, I, I have different projects depending on whether I'm actually doing something else, but it, it honestly, it helps me focus. Once I got tenure, I started knitting in meetings and I have to, I'm so much happier. That's awesome. Uh, sorry. It's one of my daughter's friends came home and oh, okay. um, getting something out of her room. I guess she has a concert tonight. So is she in a, <laughs> anyway, is sorry she, about that. Is she in a rock band? She is. She's a punk drummer. Oh my so gosh! She's in one band with her buddy called um, Snot Hostel. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's right. You heard Amazing. that right. Um, and then awesome. she plays with some groups at school too. Yeah. I don't know if I've ever yep. heard of a punk drummer. 
It's I mean, just a drummer and a punk. Yeah, but is there, band, is there yeah. like a style of drumming that is ideal for? Oh yeah, just just faster. Absolutely, well, and if like you think preferably, about like the Ramones, yeah. You know? yeah. Okay. Okay. Super fast. All right. That's. I mean, that's really specific. <laughs> yeah, I mean, she has to learn. She's learned all kinds of different drumming for different mm-hmm. kinds of music too. But that's her. That's her happy place. That's so cool. That is really cool. <laughs> All right, I don't remember what we were talking about. Me neither. <laughs> well, we were talking about the fabulous dinner party. Oh, yeah, we were, totally gonna a, we were going to have an awesome dinner party. Yes. I mean, so so Quinetta right up the road is a trained sommelier. Yep. Uh, she is? Yes. Oh, my God. I know, right? So, yeah, Bill, um, Bill can cook a little bit out in California. I've had some family okay. meals with him. Well, we we need to be him. talking about Lisa, but he has two big secrets. Which is okay. <laughs> should not be sharing publicly. No we idea. Have to, we have to cut this out of the public version, Holly. Mom's the word. <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking some time out of your day to help us understand what's going to be happening and getting to know you a little bit more. We really appreciate it. You're very welcome. Thank you, Lisa. We're really excited. All right. Thanks. That's a wrap. Bye. 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 All right, that's it for the fill-in, folks. Thank you for listening. And thank you so very much, Lisa, for taking the time to speak with us. I hope your knitting project turned out beautiful. I also want to thank Filene's credit union partners, without which this work would not be possible. Generous support for the Center of Excellence for Consumer Financial Lives in Transition is provided by CUNA Mutual Group, BCU, Digital Federal Credit Union, and PSCU. If you're listening and feeling inspired and wondering what you can do to get more involved in this work, your organization, too, has an opportunity to get involved as a supporter and partner in our inner circle. Visit filene.org slash inner circle for more information. Lastly, if you like this episode, please do rate us on Apple Podcasts so more people can find us. And make sure you're subscribed to the Filene Fill-In Podcast so you can keep up with what's going on at Filene. You'll find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. To get in touch about today's show, email me at hollyf at filene.org or find us on Twitter at Filene Research. Until next time, thanks everyone. <laughs>